So I have, a, I have a confession for you this morning. I'm not a real patient guy. I, I have a tendency to be impulsive. And I, I, it's not my fault. It's my dad's. I blame him. Me and my dad were shopping one day. We were downtown in Youngstown. You remember when you used to have to go downtown to do your shopping? We were downtown. We're in a suit. We're in this, this large department store. And dad had gone in to buy a pair of socks. So I need a pair of socks. Let's go downtown. And I'm thinking it's a long trip for a pair of socks. But dad, dad liked to shop. And so we were walking past a jewelry counter. And dad looked in and there's this ring in there. And he forgot all about the socks. And he looked at me and said, I'll bet your mom would like that ring. My dad was so dedicated to my mom, it was, it was just awesome to watch how much he loved her. And so he bought it. It was an impulsive buy. It was a $900 ring. That's a lot of money today. This was 1959. So he comes home with this thing wrapped up, and my mom looks at it, and she's just kind of blown. This is fantastic. And then I could see the visage on my mom change. She said, wait a minute can we afford this? And the answer was, no, we can't. <laughs> so the ring had to go back. My dad was that impulsive. He spent roughly the equivalent of about $8,000 today just on, on, well, my dad gave that gene to me. I've got it. I'm impulsive. And I'm impulsive because I'm not patient. I'm not patient because I don't like to wait. Anybody here like to wait? Raise your hand if you're fond of waiting. Yeah, Wayne, way to go, Wayne. Yeah, there's a man of patience right there. God bless you. Okay, I don't like to wait. I don't want to talk to you about waiting today. We're in Zephaniah, uh, in, a coast, we're in an Old Testament book. And for those of you that are just getting caught up with us, we're reading the Old Testament because the Old Testament has a greater purpose other than a history book, other than a record of what happened to the Jewish people. Uh, the Old Testament is the initial revelation of the character and nature of God. It's God telling us about himself. A whole Bible is about God telling us about himself. So if you're reading the Bible to find out about you, you're probably going to miss the point. It's God's self-revelation to his creation. So every passage in the Old Testament, every passage in the New Testament will reveal something, some aspect of the character and nature of God or some fundamental phase of God's plan of redemption for those who belong to him. So that's why we're in Zephaniah. Zephaniah is going to tell us something about God. And what we've learned so far in Zephaniah, we've had three sermons. This is the fourth. But in the first one, we learned that there are earthly consequences for our sin. Now, I want to be precise about this. Not eternal not, there are not eternal consequences for the sin of those who believe in Jesus Christ, of those who have confessed their sin to him, confessed that he's the only son of God, repented and turned away from their sin. For those people, there are no eternal consequences for our sin. We're no longer under the sin, uh, the, the consequence of death for our sins, but there can be temporal consequences. We have to live sometimes with the consequences of the things we've done. And so we saw that in our very first sermon. What we saw in the second sermon is that everyone, and that includes everyone, falls under the wrath of God. The wrath of God will be vented on everyone. Now, that sounds kind of fatalistic until we understand that Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior, has taken that wrath upon himself in our place. 
So, if you know Jesus Christ, if you're one with him, then the wrath of God has been vented upon him, and we're not going to suffer that wrath. If you do not know Jesus Christ, you, if you do not have that one who substituted himself for us, then you will take on that wrath yourself. And that looks like eternal condemnation. It looks like eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. It's burning up for all of eternity. So everyone is subject to the wrath of God, those who are in Christ, Christ has already endured it for us. And the third thing that we learned was that God blesses humility. And the problem in uh, Zephaniah is that Judah and Jerusalem are surrounded by prideful, arrogant nations, and they're taking on some of the attributes of the nations around there. They're taking on the worldly ways, and God calls them to humble themselves before him, to worship him, and then goes on to explain what happens to those who don't. And it's not very pleasant. So, the way this is all rolled out is by Zephaniah's time, the northern kingdom, Israel, the ten northern tribes, have been carried away captive by the Assyrians. Uh, Judah is taking on the ways of the world. They've looked at, the, they, were, they were miraculously delivered from uh, the onslaught of the Assyrians, and, and then they got complacent. They settled in. They began to take God for granted. Uh, they began to compromise his word. They began looking at the people around them and go, well, these guys have some ideas, and these guys have some good ideas. Let's do this. Let's try this out. And by the time of Zephaniah, they had turned their back on God. So God sends Zephaniah to warn the Judeans that judgment is coming on all those who have led Judah astray and I would imagine that the Hebrews could understand that, but he also is there to warn them that judgment is about to fall on them as well for taking God for granted, for putting him on the, the, the back burner, for putting him a little bit higher on the shelf, and forgetting that he was there, and even worshiping other gods. So judgment's going to fall on the surrounding nations, but it's coming down on Judah as well. So the prophecies concerning the surrounding nations were incredibly harsh. But even at that, God has given an indication that he will preserve a remnant of those nations that will ultimately worship him. And today, we're going to see that God is speaking directly to Jerusalem. And as the leading city of Judah, as the, the capital of Judah, Jerusalem represents everything that the entire country is doing. So he's going to talk to Jerusalem, but he's going to talk also to the remnant. And this is something we see over and over again in the Old Testament, that God always preserves a remnant of his people so that they don't perish from the face of the earth, so that God's promises will be satisfied and fulfilled through them. So the remnant are the ones who are willing to humble themselves, willing to worship the one true God, but Today we're going to find out that they also have to wait upon the Lord. So here's what we're going to learn today. This is the truth that God reveals about himself in this passage. And it is what, what it means to wait upon the Lord. We're going to find out what it means to wait upon the Lord. It's a, it's a phrase we all know. It pops up in our songs from, some time, from time to time. It pops up in our conversation with each other. It pops up in our counseling. We're going to find out exactly what it means. So the title of today's sermon is 
wait. And I got to tell you something, I've been struggling with this all week long because I don't like to wait. And, uh, and that's why I tortured you two weeks ago and said that we were going to have to wait until we heard what the message is. And the message is, wait. Okay. So we've got three proclamations that occur in this passage. Number one, we're going to see the prophet's indictment of Jerusalem in verses 1 through 5. We will see the Lord's judgment and what that looks like in verses 6 through 7. And in the very last verse, verse 8, we will see that that judgment will go out to all the earth and we'll we'll not only see that it will encompass all the earth, but we're going to find out what we as God's people, what we as the body of Christ can do about this coming judgment. The one we'll, we'll see what's happening in Zephaniah's time and we'll be able to extrapolate that into our time. So we, we've heard in the previous passage about the indictment of the nations surrounding Judah. And now we're going to hear one on Judah herself. But you know what? It's not readily apparent. So we've gone from talking about Nineveh to verse 1, which says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Now, we've been talking about Nineveh. Nineveh is called the exultant city. It might be easy to assume that we're talking about Nineveh again, uh, that there's a continuation. But in order to find out exactly what's going on, we, we have to continue reading because context is everything. Amen? Okay. That was a weak amen, folks. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's better. Okay. So in verse 2, it says, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. Now, this is God speaking through Zephaniah. And what he's saying is, she's not listening to me. She's not listening to correction. Now, as soon as we hear that, we can kind of launch into, what a bunch of dummies. How come they're not listening to God? God's done so much for them. God has delivered them from Egypt. He's got them through the wilderness. He's given them the law. He's given them the tabernacle. He's given them the temple. There's all these incredible things going on. And in particular for Judah, he just delivered them from the Assyrians. I mean, they woke up one morning, Assyrians were either dead or gone. So nothing they did. They were sleeping. They come in, and the threat is gone. Jerusalem was under siege. And so now we're like, and they're not listening to God? Give me a break. But we have to, we have to stop and think about this for a second. Because we, it says that they did not hear his voice. Are we listening to his voice? And this is a question we have to ask ourselves individually. Am I listening to God's voice? And it would be very easy for me to say, well, I don't know. He hasn't said anything to me recently. I haven't heard any audible voice. I mean, when he speaks, then I'll be ready to listen. Except we have the scriptures, don't we? And what does the scripture say about itself? As God has said, now we've got the New Testament. Zephaniah didn't have that. But God has said everything he's going to say in his son, Jesus Christ. So is God speaking to us? Absolutely. He has spoken to us. And if we understand the nature of the word of God, we know that every time we open the Bible, God is saying something to us. Now, we're probably looking for answers to our problems and and decisions that we're making and everything, but we have to understand that the Bible is about God. It's his self-revelation to his creation. So when we start reading the Bible as to what it says about God, we will understand who God is and how he functions with his creation, how he relates with his people, and then we will have a better understanding of what we are being formed and shaped into. Because we're being conformed into his image. 
So the more we know about God, the more we know about how we should walk on this earth. So those people were not listening to his voice. We've got to be careful of how we might condemn them because if you're anything like me, there are times I would rather not hear his voice. There are times when I want to go off on my own path, when I want to go in my own direction. And I want to set the Bible aside and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't think when God wrote that, he was thinking about my situation. There are probably facets of what I'm going through that God doesn't understand. Well, that's silly. Because God is everywhere. God is all-powerful. And he knows everything. There's nothing about my life that my Father in heaven doesn't know. I don't have to inform him. I don't have to sit there and think that he's missed something. I don't have to worry about whether or not he was distracted when I went through this. Maybe he was taking care of Scott while I was struggling over here. So God knows everything. He's everywhere. He has spoken to us in his word. We should do that. Now, the second thing that these people were struggling with is they didn't want to be corrected. And again, we could go, well, they're a bunch of dummies. But I've got to stop and think, how many times do I resist being corrected? I mean, as... As human beings, we like to be right, don't we? And some of us are a bit more passionate about it than others. Some of us are very passionate about being right. And some of us are so passionate about being right that we really don't care what's going on on the other side or what the Word of God says. We insist on being right. So we have a group of people in Judah in Zephaniah's time that are waiting to hear from the Word of God, and, and, and they've got a prophet standing in front of them, and they're not listening to them, and they don't want to be corrected. So we're seeing a little bit about human nature here and what God has to say about it. He's chastising these people. He, the, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Now, we're not totally sure who we're talking about yet, but now we're, the, the, the phrase, her God, pops up here, and we know that the people of Judah worship the one true God, at least they should be worshiping the one true God. The other nations are worshiping other gods. So there's an indication that maybe this is God's people. But if we wanted to ignore that, we could. We could say in verse 3, her officials within her are roaring lions. That's just about any major city. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle. The only true prophets are the prophets of God. These prophets are in this city. Treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. So there are priests that are, should be functioning in a holy environment, and they're not. They do violence to the law. Well, they have a law, and the law, the only one true law we know comes from God. So we can make some assumptions, but so far, this could be any city that we're talking about. It could be any city in the world. Then we run into verse 5, and this says, The Lord within her is righteous. The Lord within her is righteous. The Lord has chosen this city as his dwelling. The Lord has chosen these people as his people. He's designated this city as the holy city. It's the apple of his eye. He's placed the temple in this city. He's occupied the temple. Now there can be no question about what city we're talking about. It is Jerusalem. So 
The Lord within her is righteous. There's only one righteous. That's the one true God. He does know injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. And here's the problem. God is talking about Jerusalem, and they know no shame. Judah has abandoned their first love. They've gone chasing after other gods. They're worshiping other idols. Even as God has proclaimed Jerusalem to be the holy city, they have departed from their holiness. Even as God has given this city his name, even as God has come to dwell there, they've turned their backs on their father. Now we can contemporize this if, we're, if we understand exactly what's happening. Because God indwells Jerusalem and the temple the same way the Holy Spirit dwells inside us. So, you see, all of the lessons that apply to Jerusalem and Judah apply to us as well. And the first and foremost is that there are earthly consequences for the sin that we commit subsequent to our salvation. So judgment will fall on Jerusalem, and we have to understand that that type of judgment that does not bring condemnation but brings the consequences for our sin in our lives can fall on us as well. Now, we will see by the end of this passage that that judgment is not eternal. That condemnation is not eternal, but it can make our walk very rough here. So that's Jerusalem's indictment. That's the problem in Jerusalem. They've turned their back on God. They're worshiping other gods. And now we're going to take a look at what that judgment that is prophesied, what that looks like. It's the Lord's judgment. And and there's a subtle shift here, but God's going to show us what this judgment looks like. He says, I've cut off nations. Now, when we see the word nations, in particular in the Old Testament, it's talking about nations other than Israel. It's talking about Gentiles, generally pagan nations. And God is saying, you've seen what happens when these nations reject me. You've seen what happens to those nations that turn their back on me. And now God is speaking in the past tense. He's speaking in the present tense. But he's also speaking in the future tense. It says, their battlements are in ruins. I've laid waste to their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. Now, if you were living in Judah at this time and looking at Assyria, looking at Moab and Ammon, looking at uh, the Philistines, looking at the Cherethites, looking at Cush, you would go, well, that's not happening. They're looking pretty good. As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons that we've been chasing after them. Their lives look pretty great. Their cities are fantastic. They've got neat stuff. We'd like to have some of that stuff. God's saying those cities are empty and that we're not seeing empty cities. What's going on here? Well, we have to understand, uh, in particular when we look at prophecy, that God doesn't measure time the same way we do. He's apart from time. So God is saying, when I'm telling you that this happened, It's either happened or it's going to happen. And you can rely on that because I'm apart from time. I don't don't walk in this linear timeline like you do. And God gives us hints on that. He says that he knows the end of an affair from its beginning. He says that he is the alpha and the omega. He's not just the beginning and the end. He's, He's everything. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And you see, that, that kind of gives everybody a headache. 
How could that be? And Jesus is just trying to say, you know, time is a construct that we've given you to measure. He's given us time as a blessing. And he's given us time as a blessing so that we can anticipate the return of Christ and the end of all time. So God, when God says the cities are empty, he's saying this is already done. It's the ultimate expression of what we call the already and the not yet. It's already happened, but it's not yet happened according to our perception. So in verse 7, God says through Zephaniah, I said, surely you will feel me, fear me. You will accept correction. That your, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. What God is saying is this is the result of rejecting me. This is what it looks like to those nations who turn their back on me. Surely when you see this, you will turn back towards me. This will be a lesson to you. So we find out that the judgment on the nations is there as a lesson to God's people. To say, turn back to me while you still can. Turn back to me before this happens. Then he says, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. So that may apply to the pagan nations. That may apply to the majority of God's people. I think it has a dual purpose here. So Zephaniah has this warning. The Lord's judgment is coming. It's going to fall on all those who reject God. But it's a warning for Judah to turn back, turn back to him to repent, to become that remnant that God promises that he will preserve and carry on his work through. So that's what the judgment looks like. Empty cities, devastated countries. Then in the next passage, we find out that this is going to fall on the entire world. You know, somebody asked a question a couple weeks ago. We were talking about the end times and how everything's going to burn up. You know, the, how everything's just going to be burnt to a cinder. And somebody said, well, w w what happens to us? <laughs> if everything's going to be burned up and we're here in the universe, does that mean we're going to be burned up too? Uh, we have to understand that the consequences of sin are this eternal fire condemnation and that we as believers have been delivered from that by Jesus Christ. I, you know, we can talk for a long time about where we're going to be when all this happens. And we can talk for a long time about when we're going to go there and how we're going to go there. But what we do know is that as God reforms the universe, as God burns everything to a cinder and then makes it new again, we will be with Christ because Christ has absorbed that wrath that is being vented on the entire universe in our place so that we don't have to go through that. So we don't have to worry about where we're going to be. We may not be sure exactly of the location. I don't think we're going to be able to put this into our Google Maps and, and find our way there, but we will be delivered from this. So with that in mind and all this judgment coming, what should the people of God do? The answer is the same for Zephaniah as it is for me and you. And he says in verse 8, Therefore, wait. Therefore, wait for me. Now, the Hebrew word here is haka, and it means to wait for the Lord to act. 
Uh, there's a deeper meaning, no, it is an anticipation that God is going to do something. So we, take, we wait in anticipation that God is going to move, that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. We wait with an eager, eagerness to see all this happen. And, and so we, we, we wait. Now, I don't know if I like that. Because I'm an impulsive guy. And waiting sounds to me like sit in a corner and twiddle your thumbs. So is that what God wants us to do? Is he calling us to be pacifists? Is he calling us to be inactive? Is he calling me to go over here and sit in this corner pew with my arms full and go, well, you wait until God does what he's going to do. You guys are going to be in a real mess. I don't think that's what he's calling us to do. I think he has something in mind. But this idea of waiting shows up in other places in Scripture. So this isn't the only time God tells his people to wait. We take a look in Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, verse 3. It says, a prophetic vision from Habakkuk, contemporary of Zephaniah. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. We wait upon the Lord. God has told us what he was going to do, and now we wait upon it. We see the same thing in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. I love that, that verse. I love that verse because what it tells me is that those times that I feel alone, those times that I've been praying to my Father in heaven and nothing is happening, those times that I have an expectation of what God is doing in my life, those times when I have an anticipation that he's going to come in and do something marvelous in my life and some corrective action or take care of the people around me or take care of my situation and everything, it says, wait. See, and that waiting involves trusting. Because the easy thing to do is to do something. You've been to that meeting where somebody presents a problem and it sounds almost insurmountable, but then somebody else in the meeting goes, well, wait a minute, we have to do something because that's who we are. We feel like we're ineffective unless we're doing something. And then they come up with all these ideas of everything we can do. Unfortunately, that happens in the church. We've got to do something. We've got to do something about the culture. The church has been threatened. The church is going to go away if we don't do something. And God says, I'll give you something to do. Wait. Ooh, that, that just, that makes my adrenaline start flowing. And that's a bad situation because it makes it hard for me to wait. Well, what are we waiting for? I want to know what I'm waiting for. We find that out in the rest of chapter, verse 8 in Zephaniah 3. Wait for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth will be consumed. We're waiting for the end of time. We're waiting for the final days. We're waiting for Armageddon to occur. 
And there, even in this, there's something really significant. I mean, you, you know, those of you that have been here for a while know that there's a head and a tail to every book. There's a message at the beginning of the book and a message at the end of the book that tell us what the book's all about. And we just found it right here when it says, all the earth shall be consumed. If you turn back a couple pages and look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord in the fire of his jealousy. All the earth shall be consumed. The beginning and the end of the book of Zephaniah says that all of the earth shall be consumed. And it tells us to wait. But we have to do something. Shouldn't we be doing something? Well, yeah. But I wanted you to understand this. God doesn't call his people to action. I mean, there may be some action involved in what he calls us to do, but God doesn't call his people to action the way we define action. There's no political lobbying committees, petitions, action groups, protests, so on and so forth. God calls his people to holiness. Any action outside of the holiness that God calls us to is on us. He doesn't call us to do things. He calls us to holiness. The holiness he calls us to may lead us to do things, but the pursuit of his holiness is our primary objective. So that explains to us how we're supposed to wait. He calls us to be his representatives. He calls us to be the remnant that he will build the eternal kingdom from. And he tells us to wait. See, we need to understand that vengeance is God's. Retribution is God's. Judgment belongs to God. Condemnation, watch this, condemnation, criticism, and righteousness belong to God, not us. And when we start Moving in those areas, we are acting in and on our own. We're not acting in holiness. So we've seen these three proclamations. We've seen this the indictment of Jerusalem. They've turned away from God. There are consequences for that. We've seen what the Lord's judgment looks like, and it's horrifying. And then we've seen that that's going to spill out on all the nations of the earth. And we're told to wait upon the Lord. Okay. You know, I, I've always got to make these decisions. Am I going to allow the word to change me or am I going to try and change the word? When God tells me to wait, am I going to try and work some loophole around that? But God tells me to wait. If I understand the full counsel of scripture I don't have to worry about how to wait because God has already told us what to do while we're waiting so how do we wait and 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 we got to take the the situation in Zephaniah into consideration Judah's surrounded 
God's promised the remnant that he would deliver them, but they have to wait. So we may be surrounded, we may feel surrounded, but God has promised us that we are the remnant and told us to wait. Now, we've got an advantage over Zephaniah because Zephaniah didn't have the whole story. All he knew was he was telling God's people to wait. And all he could say is, I don't know, God says to wait, you better wait. So they wait, those who believe Zephaniah, they wait in trust that the Lord is doing something. We don't have to walk around with the doubt that God is going to do anything. We have the whole story. We know that if we're followers of Jesus Christ, God will redeem us. We know that he's already given us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do the things that he's called us to do. We have the full counsel of his word. And you know what? If we're looking at the full counsel of his word, we have a charge. He's told us what to do while we're waiting. He's told us what action we could take that fits in with our pursuit of holiness. And we see it in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, here's what you do while you're waiting. Go out and share the gospel and teach people the word of God. Make disciples. If we have any questions about that, we can go to Acts, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power. I love that. Anybody here like power? I, I like power. I'm an alpha. Oh, nobody else. I'm the only one. Yeah, okay. You liars. <laughs> okay? I like power. And so the scripture tells me that God will give me power to be wealthy, to be healthy. God will give me power to be influential, to be popular to have nice things. He'll give me power to influence people. Is that what the scripture says? No. It says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, there should be a hint right there because the Holy Spirit's job is to bring glory to the Son and everything he does will in some fashion bring glory to the Son even as he transforms us. You will receive this power and what's the power for? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We will be empowered to be the living testimonies of the one true God. You know what? That's a hard job. I don't think we can make this happen in and of ourselves. Not only that, it goes against our nature because most of us are looking out in one way or another for ourselves. But the beauty about this is we don't have to work this up. We don't have to conjure, we don't have to reach deep down inside and do the things we need to do. God has already equipped us to do what he's called us to do. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the Holy Spirit to lead us and to counsel us and to direct us and convince us and to comfort us. So we're supposed to wait, and while we're waiting, we become witnesses to the gospel. Now there's a, there's a lesson in this passage that I think we can wrap our arms around today, 
And again, it's about God's character and nature. See, God was pretty hard on Jerusalem. I mean, they could very easily say, okay, we made a few mistakes. Why are you being so harsh on us? God is hard on Jerusalem. Hard on his beloved city. I said it before, the apple of his eye. So he's not hard on them because he's mad at them. He's hard because he loves Jerusalem. There's something about that city that, that God loves. And look, look what's in store for that holy city. And this is what I told you a little bit earlier, that, that this, this uh, encouragement to wait, uh, this judgment that fall, would fall on us as consequences for the sin that we commit subsequent to salvation, it is not an eternal condemnation. Look, look, look what he has in, in plans for Jerusalem. It's in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw, this is John speaking, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, Jerusalem... It's going to be made new. It's going to be a new creation. And it's going to be made beautiful, like a bride adorned for her husband. If, if you've ever been to a wedding here, you, you'll see this moment that happens in the wedding where the wedding parties are all standing here, the groom is standing here, the, the bridesmaids are fanned out over here, and the doors are closed. And uh, there's a pause in the music, and the wedding march starts, and the doors open up, and there's the bride. And I have yet to see a bride standing in that doorway that wasn't absolutely stunning. Now, I think the bride's stunning, but my reaction it has no comparison to the reaction of the groom. <laughs> and he just has this silly smile on his face. And he is just so pleased to see how beautiful his bride is. Well, that's going to be Jerusalem adorned like a bride, the place where God lives. Well, let's move that whole message forward 2,000 years into the time of the cross. You see, brothers and sisters, because we are the place where God lives. We are the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. And those promises, those promises apply to you and me. This is how we know that the consequences we suffer in a temporal basis do not condemn us for all eternity because God is preparing us to be adorned like a bride for his son. It's an incredible thing. So the lessons we learn about how God deals with Jerusalem can apply to how God deals with us because we are God's eternal dwelling place. Now that... That should lead us to ask ourselves two questions this morning. And I'm going to personalize this. What are you waiting for?
what are you waiting for God to do? And even as you think about that, ask yourself this question. How am I waiting? How am I waiting? What am I doing while I'm waiting for God? This is something that, brothers and sisters, is something I'm trying to learn to do. Because I've always thought that waiting was passive. And now we find out that it's active. That while we wait, we don't just share the gospel. It's not just about going down to stories in the park. We live the gospel. We've received grace. We've received mercy. We're being conformed into his image. We're being shaped into his likeness. And while I'm waiting, I need to be a representative of that. I need to let grace and mercy and forgiveness flow from me in at least the same magnitude that it flowed to me, which is incredibly rich. Now, if we can do that, if we can strive for that level of holiness, if we can strive to be those vessels of grace that we're being shaped into, we have a promise. Elder Ristow read it a little bit earlier. Watch this. Isaiah 40, 20, 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Isaiah could just as easily have said, don't you know what the scriptures say? Haven't you read them? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brothers and sisters, God wants us to run and fly. He wants us to soar to such an extent that the world looks at us and says, they must have an awesome God. Look what he's doing in and through them. And all we have to do is wait. Now part of that waiting is to trust that God will do what he says he will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that even though we might find it hard to wait by the presence and power of your Spirit, we can learn to do that. We thank you for the promise, Father, uh, that those who wait will renew their strength. They will walk and not faint, Father. They will fly on wings as an eagle. Help us to embrace that promise, Father. Help us to place our entire trust and faith in you, that you will do what you say you will do, Father. And forgive us for those times we doubt and forgive us for those times we fall weak. But even as we confess that there are times that those happen, we, we embrace the idea, Father, that we are your eternal home. And you have a place for us with you in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.